0: Welcome to the New York Institute for the Humanities podcast. I'm Robert Boynton. This episode of The Vault is from November 17, 2012, when the Institute held a day-long symposium in which playwrights, poets, scientists, philosophers, artists, and activists discussed the phenomenon of solitary confinement. Titled, Should You Ever Happen to Find Yourself in Solitary, Wry Fancies and Stark Realities, the event was the brainchild of Lawrence Weschler. Institute's director. Scarlett Kim is a staff attorney at the ACLU National Security Project and the co author of Boxed In The True Cost of Extreme Isolation in New York's Prisons.
1: So I was saying that we will be having a little panel at the end of this, but first I want to hear about the recent report by the New York Civil Liberties Union, which has gotten a lot of press. And Scarlett Kim is one of the co authors of that report, and here she is.
2: I actually wanna bring the discussion home and I wanna talk about what's happening in New York. In other words, what's happening in our state and in our community. And I don't wanna just talk about what's happening to prisoners in New York, but also why all New Yorkers should care about what's happening to prisoners in our state. Second, the NYCLU project focused not only on the local in geographic terms, but more than that, really on the granular and the micro in terms of how solitary confinement works. And we really sought to understand how it works who's being subjected, what do these people look like, sound like, what are their stories, and what these individuals were experiencing, both in terms of their physical environment and mentally and emotionally. And I want to add a footnote, which is that on the one hand, solitary confinement, despite its varied iterations across contexts, serves a fundamentally similar purpose, which is to impose social isolation, sensory deprivation. On the other hand, the picture is very, very complicated, even in the United States. So we can't just talk about solitary confinement as a kind of monolithic thing. It occurs in the federal system and in almost every state system, and each system uses it for a slightly different constellation of reasons. And the pathways to reform, I think, are going to look slightly different in each context. So I think that a nuanced understanding of solitary confinement really requires us to take the discussion down to the micro level. Finally, the reason why I I hope it's appropriate for me to close out today is that our project focused first and foremost on narratives and the power of narratives. I personally communicated with over a hundred different individuals incarcerated in solitary confinement, mostly by letter, but I also conducted multiple face-to-face interviews and my purpose was really to try and build relationships and to gather very rich stories because i wanted to represent these individuals who couldn't speak for themselves because by virtue of their incarceration not as you know symbols or archetypes but as very complex human beings with complex stories i want to end on the note that that work gathering stories and humanizing prisoners is difficult but i think very critical And I think that it's important to remember that solitary confinement is not just something that happens passively, but something that we actually do to people. So with that in mind, I wanted to start with a short film that some very talented people at the NYCLU produced, which features interviews with family members whose loved ones are currently in solitary confinement.
3: If I were to take my dog and, like, put him in a box for a whole year, you know, I would probably go to jail for that. But they think that that's okay to do to human beings.
0: So it's not easy knowing
3: that someone that you love is um, in a box. No sunlight, no contacts. I pray for them, you know that his mind doesn't go because that's meant to like really affect a person's mind. So I pray that (laughs) that he stays sane. Over the last two
1: decades, New York, like a lot of states, has seen a tremendous increase in the use of extreme isolation, or what a lot of people commonly refer to as solitary confinement. Currently, there are approximately 5,000 extreme isolation beds in about 39 different prisons spread all throughout New York State. We set to figure out what exactly happens inside of these extreme isolation cells, and what are the costs both inside and outside
3: prison walls. Before Damo was incarcerated, um, when he was put in the box specifically, um, I just thought that, you know, for people who were, like, misbehaved, they went to the box for a month, two months, three months. I never knew
4: that they put them there for that as long as they do. I think when you talk to people who have been through it, they're not the same as when they went in. I think the box does nothing but hurt. It's harmful, it's torture. You don't get any skills in there. You're just, you know, you feel less than human from you know the accounts that I've heard from my son and from Carlos, and what skills are you possibly learning in there? Nothing. So coming home is even worse of a transition. I think not only for Carlos, but for a son who's also dealing with being in solitary. We can give, but only so much because there's been so much damage. The thing that I worry about when he comes out, though, is
3: if he'll still have that mentality that says, I'm an animal, you know, because I've been treated that way. You know, if we build people up and we help ourselves, I wish I would see more of that rehabilitation so that when they come out, they're not going back in. And when they come
4: out, they can actually contribute. The darkest moments you know, sadly to say is every day because first of all, I never know as a mother, if my son is still alive. And I also don't know whether or not Carlos or my son, once we're back in the same household, what's that going to look like? How much do we have to put into trying to fix and mend and understand and be gentle?
2: How much healing time will there be? If any, Well, extreme isolation inflicts psychological and emotional harm on all individuals, uh, regardless of their mental stability. But for super vulnerable people, like those with pre existing mental health issues or juveniles, it can be devastating and potentially life threatening.
3: Now that I'm back in upstate COFO solitary, I toss, turn, and wake up several times at night due to the banging, screaming, and cursing. I toss and turn and wake up several times. At I feel night, like I'm developing some kind of schizophrenia behavior. I hear the voices echoing as I try to fall asleep. Voices echoing as I try to fall asleep. I feel like I'm developing some kind of schizophrenia. Behavior. Voices echoing as I try to fall asleep.
4: Since he's he was younger, there was always a little something different about Carlos. I'm not sure when he was first diagnosed, but I, I think it was later on in his teenage years or early 20s. And he already had a mental illness, which was exasperated by being in prison and then by being put into a box where his hallucinations and his thoughts just developed more. felt like society had threw him away and didn't care about him. He's described it vividly as just being a small box that sometimes get smaller. It was an absolute hell, hell for him, he said, because he couldn't get out. He would scream, attempted suicide many times. I mean, his wrists are cut. He just wanted out because of the hallucination. Mm. One of the scenarios he remembers vividly, the lights socket, the the metal melted, and it transformed into a person in front of mm. him, frozen with fear, and there's no one to help him. So you say that you have a mental illness and you need the help. The guards will treat you differently. And you will be abused more so. Sometimes people just suffer in silence.
2: Our project communicated with over a hundred different men who are incarcerated in extreme isolation, and we found across the board that many of them experienced the same types of emotional and psychological effects after spending time in extreme isolation. These effects included anxiety, depression, uncontrollable impulses, and rage, and oftentimes these effects fueled irrational outbursts of aggression or violence.
1: The way I can describe the mood swings I had while locked in a cell up state is they, they were kind of, kind of like, like the temper counter. tantrums I threw as a child. Ron helpless, moments of, overwhelming and unchangeable emotions Ron, helpless moments of overwhelming and unchangeable emotions exploding out of me. I was anxious and overly frustrated because I couldn't seem to function properly. And then I would get so annoyed with my bunkmates that I would just beat on them or scream at them. And afterward I would feel so horrible is that they were like kind of like the temper tantrums I threw as a child. Beat on them, or I knew it wasn't right, but at the same time I couldn't control it either. The guilt from this behaviors would actually push me over the edge and made me feel like I didn't deserve to live.
4: My son had described it as the walls were filled (laughs) feces. All over and dried urine. The mattress they gave him was less than an inch. Really he stiffy. actually slept on the floor rather than the At mattress. At first, they didn't give him any blanket. The blanket they gave him was really he thinned out. He had holes in it. The toilet was stopped Just up. Just really disgusting. They're not getting food to eat. They get showers twice treated he treated like he was garbage and he didn't matter. Slapped in the face. Punched in the face and the eye. Not allowed to see medical. They would tell him, you're not shit. You don't matter. There was an infestation of bed bugs. And it was cold. It was cold. He was always cold. Oh my God, and as a mother your kid being hungry and cold and locked in a room, and like you can't do anything about it. I visualize it every night. There are things that I know when he comes home that I am not going to have the right ingredients
2: to mend him. Extreme isolation damages prisoners. It causes severe emotional and psychological trauma and harm. Many of these effects are lasting and will remain with prisoners when they return to the general prison population or when they return home to their family and friends.
3: Then I get depressed. I get depressed. Being in here is changing and start having mood swings and snapping on people. And start having mood swings and snapping on people when they talk to me. Being in
4: here is changing me in a way I don't want to change. This is what we're making. So these young people are going in. Nothing's happening rehabilitative wise, like people say. They're coming out really angry at a system that threw them away and harmed them.
2: The way the disciplinary process works is, in the prison system, there are many, many different rules. And prisoners who violate any one of those rules can potentially be sentenced to extreme isolation. DOCS has claimed that the men that end up in extreme isolation are the most violent and dangerous prisoners in the general prison population. But we found that that simply was not the case. Only 16% of sentences to extreme isolation were for violent misbehavior, specifically assault or weapons.
0: When David first went to prison in January 2011, I didn't hear from him for a couple of weeks. I was told a counselor would call me and, and all of that. I didn't hear from him. I became concerned. I called downstate, and they told me on the phone he was in the box. And he got in there the day he went in. He tried to take Suboxone in with him. So they gave him 30 days in the box, 30 days for bringing in a prescription drug, and that's when I first learned the box is used for anything. It's the first line of punishment. So when he got the sentence of six months for writing to his girlfriend, I thought this is just more of the same. They are using tier three tickets and the box as a first line of punishment, not even considering whether it's violent or nonviolent. That doesn't even matter. If it's violent, I don't know what they do. I guess it's a longer sentence. I don't understand the mentality of treating everyone like the worst criminal who's in there, like the mass murderer who's a a true sociopath. This is someone who committed a nonviolent drug crime. Can they take a moment just to assess him? and say, you know, that he doesn't need this.
1: We've been through this before. New York experimented with extreme isolation back in the 19th century. And that experiment found that its use was extremely harmful, totally unnecessary. And that experiment was quickly abandoned. Yet here we are again, in the midst of another human rights crisis. New York's use of extreme isolation today is just as arbitrary and unnecessary as it was back in the 19th century. There are real alternatives to extreme isolation to protect safety both inside and outside our prisons.
2: Extreme isolation is a human rights violation. It's inhumane, it causes prisoner trauma and suffering, and we need to change it now. Well, I don't know what the purpose of incarceration is supposed to be, but um, it destroys spirits
4: and not just a spirit spirits of humanity communities it affects the world as a whole it's inhumane on that level it's not just small pockets of people that are affected it's a worldwide issue it's torture because the system is uh
3: rather than rehabilitative you just have a large population of people whose minds are in the same place as when they went in do you know um so why not take the time that they are already sentenced to and
0: rehabilitate? It was bad when they're in prison. That's really bad. But it raises it to a new level when they're in the box. You're driving away and you feel as though you're leaving them in harm's way. So I'm leaving knowing I there's nothing I can do. I just have to drive home. And you live moment to moment, day to day.
2: So I want to turn to the report now and basically just walk you briefly through our methodology, the findings, and the recommendations. And I apologize if I am a bit redundant, although I will flesh out some of the points that were made in the video. As a preface, I just wanna say a little word about why we undertook the project. The American Civil Liberties Union, which is the umbrella organization under which the New York Civil Liberties Union is nested, has a national prison project which advocates on behalf of prisoners across the country and litigates conditions of confinement. And the National Prison Project has been observing the use of solitary confinement across the country for the past decade with increasing concern. And it's made challenging the practice a priority issue. Simultaneously, the New York Civil Liberties Union receives hundreds and hundreds of prisoner letters every year, and many of those letters are from individuals that are incarcerated in solitary confinement. So the project sought to take a closer look at the state level of what was going on and to try and understand what was happening. And I also wanted to add a terminological note. As was mentioned in the video throughout the report and for the remainder of the talk, I'm actually gonna refer to solitary confinement as extreme isolation. And the reason for that is because New York employs a unique brand of solitary where about half of the men spend 23 hours locked down alone in a cell and the other half spend those 23 hours locked down with another individual. So we use that term extreme isolation to capture the practice of subjecting one or two individuals in a cell to the conditions that we commonly understand as solitary confinement. So in terms of our methodology, we relied on a variety of quantitative and qualitative sources of information. As I mentioned before, we communicated with over 100 prisoners that are currently or have recently spent significant periods of time in extreme isolation. And these men were very diverse in terms of their backgrounds. They ranged in age from 17 to their 50s. They were black, white, Hispanic. They were convicted of crimes ranging from nonviolent drug offenses to violent felonies. And nearly all will return home one day, some within the next few years. We also interviewed family members, as you can see from the video, and corrections employees. Finally, we considered these stories juxtaposed against the scientific literature, legal standards, and thousands of pages of previously unreleased records from the Department of Corrections, which we obtained through New York's open records laws. What did we find? I'll start with the hard numbers. On any given day, New York incarcerates approximately 4,500 men in extreme isolation, which is about 8% of the overall prison population. Mm -hmm. About 2,000 of those men are housed in dedicated extreme isolation facilities upstate, which you saw in the video, and Southport Correctional Facilities. About half of the men, as I mentioned, in extreme isolation are housed alone in a cell the size of a typical elevator. The other half are housed with another individual in a cell the size of a typical parking space. Many thousands more men cycle in and out of extreme isolation every year. The Department of Corrections supervises about 56,000 prisoners, and last year it issued over 13,500 sentences to extreme isolation. So how do men end up in these types of conditions? The New York prison system, like all prison systems, are strictly regimented environments where prisoners have to conform to a very elaborate set of rules which govern virtually every aspect of their behavior. And a violation of any one of those rules can result in punishment. In New York, there is basically no meaningful constraint on the use of extreme isolation as punishment. Virtually any prisoner can go in for breaking any prison rule. And the Department of Corrections' own data illustrated that five out of six sentences to extreme isolation were for nonviolent misbehavior. Some common examples include testing positive for marijuana, selling contraband, such as chewing tobacco, and cutting class or work duty. Before receiving a sentence to extreme isolation, there are some procedural protections in play, Prisoners are granted a disciplinary hearing, but that hearing is overseen by an officer who is an employee at the facility, and there are virtually no rules of evidence. And so these hearings often boil down to the testimony of a corrections officer versus that of a prisoner, and not surprisingly, prisoner testimony is often discredited. We reviewed many, many disciplinary records, and we saw that many convictions were based solely on the written or oral testimony of a corrections officer. The DOCS uh, data shows that 95% of hearings that could potentially result in extreme isolation find prisoners guilty, which gives you some sense of how flawed the disciplinary system is. The Population of prisoners in extreme isolation is also very diverse, and you'll see that extreme isolation captures a wide swath of individuals, including those that are uniquely vulnerable to the effects of extreme isolation. So these include juveniles whose minds are still developing, the elderly whose minds and bodies are increasingly fragile, and many individuals suffering from mental health and substance abuse issues. The capriciousness of this system is further suggested by the disproportionate number of black prisoners placed in extreme isolation, which is above and beyond the overrepresentation of black men in the overall prison population. Finally, with respect to the system, there's no limit to the amount of time a person can be sentenced. The average sentence is five months, many languish far longer, and once placed in extreme isolation, it's very difficult to get out. The slightest infraction can extend your sentence by months or even years. So what happens to individuals inside extreme isolation? Prisoners in extreme isolation live in a world of unrelenting monotony and idleness. They spend 23 hours a day in a small barren cell. Their meals arrive through a slot in the door. They receive no programming whatsoever, whether it be educational, rehabilitative, or transitional. Phone calls are prohibited, personal possessions are few, and recreation is one hour alone in an empty cage that prisoners and correction staff alike refer to as a human kennel. Neglect is common, mistreatment and abuse rampant. Prisoners can be deprived of anything and everything, including exercise, showers, clothing, bedding, and even toilet paper as punishment for additional infractions while in extreme isolation and also at the whim of corrections officers. Medical and mental health care is elusive. This combination of isolation and deprivation inflicts grave emotional and psychological harm. One individual who spent nine months in extreme isolation told us that it bred wild and uncontrollable mood swings that vacillated between violence directed at his cellmate and scathing guilt. His anecdote is consistent with decades of scientific research that has documented that even among the healthy and mentally stable, extreme isolation induces anxiety, depression, despair, rage, and uncontrollable impulses. And for vulnerable prisoners, it can be devastating and potentially life-threatening, leading to self-harm and attempted suicide. The same individual who described his mood swings requested mental health counseling for the nine months that he was in extreme isolation. His pleas were ignored during that entire period, and he ended up attempting suicide. Extreme isolation has very harmful ripple effects for both the general prison population and for our home communities. One individual wrote of his transition back to the general prison population, My mood swings still linger. I was terror-stricken for the first two weeks. That kind of behavior is nothing like me at all. My confidence in myself and my ability to communicate is more challenged now. My depression is pretty bad off too. All I know is I was fine, and then I went to the box, and it seems like part of me is still there. Prisoners also carry the effects of extreme isolation back home. The Department of Corrections releases 25,000 prisoners per year, 2,000 of whom are released directly from extreme isolation to the street. And while in extreme isolation, as I mentioned, they receive no educational, vocational, rehabilitative, or transitional programming, leaving them utterly unprepared to rejoin society. One individual who I interviewed will be directly released from extreme isolation in September 2015, and his ambition is to work in an office one day. He desperately doesn't want to return to prison, but he knows he's not set up for anything else because he has no access to the education or training that would prepare him to enter the workforce. He said, the nightmare starts with the realization I'm going home from the box. So it's hard to believe after everything I've just said, but there actually is a glimmer of hope. So I want to begin with a premise which is that separating prisoners from the general prison population is an important corrections tool. The Department of Corrections needs to remove chronically violent or extremely vulnerable prisoners from the general prison population, both for the safety of other prisoners as well as for staff. But prisoner separation is absolutely not synonymous with subjecting individuals to inhumane and counterproductive forms of isolation and deprivation. Over the past few years, there are other states that have actually adopted this premise and have shown a couple of pathways to reform. In Colorado, a few years ago, the legislature ordered an independent review of solitary confinement, and it ended up transferring about 30% of that population back to the general prison population, and that review is still underway. In Maine, the legislature commissioned a similar study and ended up ultimately transferring 70% of the population in extreme isolation back to the general prison population. And in Mississippi, of all states, an ACLU lawsuit prompted a review of their practices and 85% of the population in extreme isolation was eventually transferred back to the general prison population. What's amazing is that none of these reforms adversely impacted safety in these correctional systems. In fact, correctional officials in all three states believe that the reforms have made their prisons safer. It's also allowed the three states to save millions in taxpayer dollars. Colorado and Mississippi closed dedicated extreme isolation facilities while transferring staff to other facilities. New York could accomplish similar reforms, and in fact it doesn't need either the legislature or the courts to do so. Governor Cuomo and Department of Corrections Commissioner Fisher can take immediate steps. And when they do, or if they do, as it were, they must accomplish two equally important objectives. The first is to ensure that prisoners are separated appropriately in the future, and the second is to make sure that we remedy the current consequences of our misguided use of separation. So the first step that we recommend is that New York adopt clear and objective standards to ensure prisoners are separated only in limited and legitimate circumstances for the least amount of time and under the least restrictive conditions possible. We detail those standards in the report, but I'd like to mention that that principle is endorsed both by mainstream legal organizations in the US, like the American Bar Association, but also by international human rights scholars, such as Professor Mendez. Our second recommendation is that New York conduct an immediate and transparent audit of the population currently in extreme isolation based on the standards which I just described and immediately transfer those that do not fit that criteria back to the general prison population. Commissioner Fisher, prior to the publication of the report, admitted that New York, quote, overuses, unquote, isolation. And after the report, he publicly announced that the department was going to commence an internal review process. The position of the NYCLU is that New York quote unquote overuses isolation both in frequency and severity in a manner that shocks the collective conscience. And so tinkering at the edges is not an adequate response. And we believe that sweeping reforms are both necessary and readily achievable. I wanted to add before I conclude a little postscript that's also contained in the report, which is that solitary confinement exemplifies and crystallizes problems that afflict other aspects of the US criminal justice system. For example, one that's been alluded to repeatedly throughout the day is the problem of mass incarceration. Solitary confinement, extreme isolation, is based on policies that are myopically focused on punishment and retribution as opposed to rehabilitation. They're also based on rhetoric and assumptions rather than hard data, evidence, and analysis of what the most effective ways of dealing with, for example, misbehavior in the prison population is. And it also relies on politics that discredit the basic humanity of people who have committed crimes and sanctions treatment that conflicts with our fundamental values as well as basic human rights. So I began the talk by focusing on the micro, and so I end the talk by encouraging folks to consider the macro and to try and apply some of the themes and the lessons that we've learned throughout today to other areas of the criminal justice system. Thank you.
0: This podcast was brought to you by the New York Institute for the Humanities at NYU and the Arthur L. Carter Journalism Institute. You can find us on Stitcher, iTunes, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. For more information, visit us at nyihumanities.org.